Please open your Bibles with me today to Mark chapter, chapter 6, the first six verses here. Mark chapter 6. Please read along with me. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his home. He could not do any miracles there except to lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. May God have a blessing upon his reading of the word today. When it comes to things like parenting, teaching, and youth ministry, I think maybe one of the hardest things to deal with is the fact that kids grow up. They, they dare to grow up. I kind of got really offended by that again and again in youth ministry, that these cute little kids that were adorable suddenly become gangly teenagers, and then you start looking at them a little warily. And then suddenly they're adults. They dare to go off to college and come back, and they're all grown up. And the problem I always had with that is in my mind, they're still down here, little kids, whereas they're up here and need to be treated as an adult. Have you ever had that problem? You've known, known somebody who is young, and then you look at them and you go, oh, I remember when, people hate it when you say that, by the way, I remember when you were so cute and little. They want to be treated where they're at now. Every once in a while, I have one of my youth group students, I talk with him over the phone, one of my former students, his name was Brett. Brett was probably the biggest troublemaker I ever had in youth group. And he was, I mean, he was like one of the kids that really you wish God would give you permission to strangle at least one kid a year because he would have gotten it from me. I love that guy, but he just, he's always pushing the limits. But now he's grown up and he's respectable and he's incredibly mature. He has a deep faith and he calls me, we have these great conversations. And I have to keep biting my tongue not to say things like, Brett, do you remember that time when you came into youth group, into my room, and you had muddy shoes on, and you thought it would be really funny if one of your friends held you upside down so you could walk on my ceiling and make muddy footprints? Like, I, I keep wanting to throw back that stuff at it, and I don't. I don't. Because we've all had those moments where the person we thought we knew has suddenly changed. They've grown, or maybe... They've revealed who they really are. And so suddenly you have this, this choice to make, this dilemma. How do you treat them? Do you treat them as the person you thought they were, or they used to be, or do you treat them the way they are now? And some of us, we have a very hard time with that. And I think that's where we kind of lead into today's uh, passage here, because we have Jesus returning here to his hometown of Nazareth after he's been away for a good while and he shows the people there that he's not 
who they thought he was. Of course, now there are reactions. There are very strong reactions to this. Varied reactions. And reactions that serve to divide a community. In fact, help us even today to see why people today are divided when it comes to Jesus' teachings. Why we all have these different reactions to him. The community here was at turns amazed by Jesus, offended by him, and even had unbelief in him. And these are still some things that we struggle with today. So let's look at the passage. While the majority of the action that Mark has been taking us through in his gospel up to this point in chapter 6 has been centered around Capernaum, now we're going back to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of a, a nothing place. It was a small little village of maybe 150, a couple hundred people. In fact, it was one of those places where everybody kind of knew everybody, and you know, just everybody was in each other's business. So it was a small town. It was no Capernaum. Capernaum was a bigger town. And it was in this town that Jesus grew up. That after when Mary and Joseph came back from Egypt, you remember they fled King Herod, they brought Jesus to Egypt while he was a toddler. When they came back, they moved back to Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up. It's where he learned his, his trade as a carpenter, or more accurately, as a builder. He would build things with his father Joseph, build houses, build cabinets, build tables, build yokes for oxen. And it's here in Nazareth that the people started getting the gossip that we heard late, earlier in this gospel. The gossip that had started to trickle back to this hometown of some Jesus out there in Capernaum who's doing miracles and teaching amazing things. And the people back here started getting growing concerned. That's when Mary and the family went to try to get Jesus back. Remember that? But now they're not prepared what happens when Jesus actually comes home and for the change that's happened in his life. Again, we see as, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, Mark does not record the actual teaching. Once again, Mark is more focused on the reaction to Jesus. That for Mark is a fascinating point to focus on. And again, like we saw way back, the reaction here of Jesus' teaching is that of powerful amazement. Jaws dropping, that kind of like, wow, amazement at his teaching. And they're scratching their heads. We see a lot of questions that people are asking each other, saying, where did this man get these things? What's with his wisdom and his miracles? They, of all people, knew that Jesus had never trained with a rabbi. I mean, those were the smart people, the people who had studied under a rabbi. Jesus never did. So they're going did he get these things? How's he doing this kind of thing? They, they never saw Jesus perform a single miracle before. Now, when I came home, I went away to Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Does anybody know that? We're, we're close here, yeah. I went from Indianapolis over to Grove City for my, my college years. When I came home from my first semester of college, I felt different. I felt more mature, more grown up. I was like, wow, I've come into my own as a person. And I was coming back, and I fully expected to be received back by my hometown, by my family, as a fully-fledged grown adult who wouldn't be treated like the teenager I once was. And I was in for a rude awakening because I still had to eat my vegetables at dinner. I still had chores to do. 
And I was really upset. I remember being like visibly upset and having a little bit of an argument with my parents because I felt different and I expected them to treat me different. So naturally I had a temper tantrum, which is, that's how you get everybody to respect you, right? But unlike my return home, when Jesus comes home, he really is changed. What we're seeing here is this, this transformation from, from Jesus, from what he was now to a person who's filling, among other roles, the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet. We don't often think of Jesus as being a prophet. You know, Jesus has many other roles that he performs. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the king. Jesus is a great healer, a great teacher. But have you ever thought of Jesus as a prophet? He is. He absolutely is. Um, That's one of the, the trifold offices of Jesus. Revelation 1.5 actually outlines that when it says of Jesus as the faithful witness. And that is pointing to his role as a prophet. That's one of his ministries as a... As, what Jesus performed, which was to take the message of the Father and deliver it to the people. And because of that, because of Jesus' role as a prophet, he identified with the prophets. He was often drawing identity, and we, we pointed out this before in Mark, where Jesus was often pointing back saying, look, same thing these guys went through in the Old Testament I'm going through right now. But I'm, of course, a new type of prophet. But here, as, as with the Old Testament, he identifies with a rejection that many of the prophets, such as Isaiah, Elijah, and Jeremiah, got. The reception they often got with the message was not very kind. And the message that Jesus is bringing, even though it's forgiveness and repentance and love, it's the gospel message, the people aren't hearing it. I mean, at first, you think they are. You know, I think that Mark starts to lead us up to that point. We, we start thinking, wow, they're really open to this message. They're amazed by it. They're astounded by it. They're asking, like, Wow, this Jesus, he's great. But soon the questions start to turn sour. And what goes from amazement starts to transform into sin. The teaching that these people witnessed back then, it's the same teaching we get today when we open up the Gospels. We open up to read the the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we see that the message speaks to us on a deep level. And we hopefully get a hunger for it, a desire for it, a craving for it. We want to drink it into our lives. And when Jesus teaches us through the Bible, we have an opportunity to respond. The people back then in Nazareth could have responded much different than how they ended up. They could have responded by falling down in front of Jesus, by becoming one of Jesus' disciples, by following him, by begging him to stay, teach us more, Lord. They could have done any of that. We have an opportunity to respond. We can accept Christ into our life can dig more into the scripture, say, Jesus, how does this apply to my life? How do these words go to me? Or we can find our amazement being overcome by our stubborn streak of sin in our lives. That's what happens next in this passage. You see, when it came to the, the people, the townspeople in Nazareth, the problem is that they don't start with the sheer facts, all these facts about Jesus, and work toward the truth. They, don't, they seem to, like they can't do that. They don't ask, if this man shows this much wisdom and learning and does all these miracles, then maybe, maybe he is a prophet. Maybe he's something more. Who is he really? Let's investigate. Instead, what they do is they start with a presupposition about Jesus. 
that Jesus is a nobody. And then they mold the facts to suit their, their bias. This is what we call confirmation bias. Have you ever heard of this before? I'll give you an example. Confirmation bias is when you already have a deep-rooted belief about something and you refuse to be challenged about it, so you only listen to things that back up your belief. You only accept what other people are saying that back up what you believe. So I'll give you an example. A non, I, I could easily go political here. I won't. I'm going to go with the most non-political of things and say eggs. Eggs. We have confirmation biases about eggs. This is why. Are eggs good or bad for you? We don't know because people have been telling us both sides for so many years that after a while people just take a stance and they go, absolutely, eggs are the best thing ever. They're the whole deal. They're protein and fats and great minerals. They're a whole meal and they taste delicious. And they're spherical and we hide them on Easter. Eggs are the best. And so we will only hear what people say that back up our belief that eggs are the best. Of course, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you think eggs are the worst. You don't like how they taste. Or you listen to people who say, well, eggs raise your cholesterol and they have the bad fats in them. They're bad for you. And maybe the chickens are really upset that we've been stealing their offspring. For so many years, they're planning a revolt. Eggs are bad. And so we have a confirmation bias about that. So when you have a confirmation bias, you only cherry-pick the facts that back up what you believe. And that's what's happening here in, with Jesus. These people have their, their, already have their bias about Jesus. And so they start cherry-picking facts about him. Even though they just were amazed, even though their jaws were just on the floor, then they start going, who does this guy think he is? After all, he's just a builder. He's just a builder. Why do they start with that question? Because builders weren't respected. They were blue-collar workers. They, on the totem pole of respect in that society, you had the rabbis up here, and you had the leaders at the synagogue. We talked about Jairus last week. You had elders and scholars. They were all like the cream of the crop. Everybody wanted to be with them. You ever go uh, Fiddler on the Roof? If I was a, w- a rich man. Do you remember the lyrics of the song where Tevye is singing? And, and I, if I was a rich man, I'd sit in the important part of the synagogue where people would want to hear what I had to say. It's that attitude, right? There's this class system that even perpetuates through today. But back then, it was present. And so, on the class system, you want to listen to people up here, but down here, where the builders were, the shepherds were, you don't listen to those people. And so, they're offended at Jesus because of Jesus' background. That's their bias. And they go, Jesus, he's just a builder. He's one of those guys. Who does he think he is? He's had no formal training. The EPC, to be up here, I have to have formal training. I mean, the church could hire anybody they wanted. But to be ordained, you have to have formal training. Jesus wouldn't have passed that. I find it interesting. In our denomination, Jesus wouldn't be ordained. But I think they probably would have made it an exception for him. But anyway, so then things get even uglier than that. What's the next question? After, you know, who is he? Is this the builder? And then they say what? what? Look in your Bible. Some of you still have it open. What's the next question? I'm sorry? Is this Mary's son? Nobody would ever dare to say, this is the son of Mary. 
they would always in that society say, this is the son of the father. What this is right here is it's an insult. This is pointing back at this, this, this slander against Jesus and his family that Jesus was born out of wedlock, that Joseph is not his father. Because they all know. I mean, when we go back to the Christmas story, and we talk about Joseph and Mary, the difficulty of Joseph accepting Mary as his wife when she's pregnant. And, and the fact that they would have this bias, uh, this, uh, this gossip surrounding them their whole life, this is where it pops up right here. The whole town knows. They all know Mary got pregnant before they got married. They all know Joseph isn't the father. So they go, this guy, isn't he that son of Mary? What they're saying is basically, this guy, we know their family. We know their sort. Nothing Good comes from that family. That's what they're saying. That's the attitude, the sneering attitude they're having. They want to drag Jesus down after that teaching so they don't have to listen to it. Because after all, if they can, if they can get Jesus down here in the mud, then they can ignore the teaching that just amazed them. The Renaissance artist Michelangelo, when he made his sculptures, when he became famous, of course, he would have marble carted in from miles and miles away, Italian marble, beautiful marble. And the marble would come and he would inspect every block. And if he found a flaw in a block of marble, even though it had just made this trip of many miles, and marble is not the lightest of materials, he would say, no, take it away. I only work with the best, the most flawless pieces of marble. He would reject the marble if it wasn't flawless. Now, the irony here is that of all the people that have ever lived, Jesus was completely without a flaw. He was flawless. He was beautiful. And yet, the people here are doing what Michelangelo did and rejecting him, finding any perceived flaw, making up the flaws so that they don't have to listen to him. The psalmist in in Psalm 118 foresaw this, this very famous verse when he said, the cornerstone." I'm sorry, the stone which the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the stone. He is beautiful. He's perfect. He's without a flaw. And yet, he is rejected. Jesus has the power to offend. And I don't want us to think that the offense starts out there with non-believers. Jesus can offend people inside the church. He can offend us Christians. We're offended when we read the Bible sometimes and he points out our sin. And we get all huffy, like, oh, that's not a sin, Jesus, really? Is that sin? Jesus' teaching calls us to carry our own cross and to suffer. His teaching tells us to forgive our enemies, to repent of our sin, to go the extra mile while under duress, and to love unconditionally. These are things that can offend us. And when society attacks Jesus for his non-progressive values, sometimes we get ashamed of Jesus. And we make excuses for him to our friends saying, well, that's not the Jesus we worship in our church. I mean, yeah, the Bible said that, but, you know, and then we make excuses for Jesus. And we're showing that we're offended by him. I guess all, it all depends on whether or not you can get past your bias as a sinner. You see, sinners want to drag everybody down to their level so that what they're doing doesn't seem so bad. What I'm doing is the same as what Camille's doing, then it's okay, right? We all do it. But if there is a perfect, holy God 
who sets the bar up here, then either I can try to ignore it or I can try to attack it like they're doing here in this passage, or I can bow down and repent and say, God, I'm down here and you want me to be up here. Make me holy. Only you can make me holy. The flawless nature of Christ is the only person, the only one who can do that. Do you ever end up using phrases that are outside of your culture and outside of your background? I don't know if anybody does this. My mom does this. My mom listens to this sermon on a podcast, by the way, so right now she's driving in the car and she's going to be frowning at me. But that's okay. I asked her permission to do this. Um, My mom, who is definitely not Jewish in the least, used Jewish phrases all the time. We thought it was normal as kids when she was like, don't putz around and... um, she would say things like, you're schlupping around the house, and that's my mashugana. And oy vey. We thought that was normal until, you know, we're like, your mom doesn't say that? No. Jewish moms say that. She, I don't know where she got all that. But at least with Jesus, it's okay for him to use Jewish phrases, right? Um, so when Jesus uses this phrase here, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. He didn't actually, here's a fun fact you could take. He didn't actually make that up. That's not an original saying of Jesus. That's a Jewish adage. That's a Jewish saying that Jesus thought applied really well to his situation here. He took it. He coined it. He made it his own. So he's using that Jewish phrase. Indeed, there is no honor for Jesus in his hometown. And isn't that a horrible shame? Like many Old Testament prophets, the greatest prophet is rejected by the ones he's gone to minister to. And the thing is, Jesus should have been the hometown hero. These people in Nazareth should have been hearing the gossip about Jesus, performing miracles, raising a dead girl, making the blind to see, stilling the storm, helping people, exercising demons. They should have heard all this and the teachings and the wonders of Jesus and been cheering him on. That's our guy. That's our boy. We know him. That's the attitude they should have had. Instead, there's no faith. There's such a desert of faith going on in and around Nazareth. There's no belief. The ones who should have known him best do not know him at all. You know, that's the irony that the people lived with the Son of God for the better part of three decades. Still, they reject him. I think it's it's a really telling thing that it's possible to have God in your midst for 30 years and still not believe. You can have God performing miracles right in front of your face, teaching you the most amazing things you've ever heard, and then you can turn around in the next hour and not believe. That's telling how deep the hooks of sin get in our lives and how sin tarnishes our belief. And in return... As they don't believe Jesus, and that amazement turns to disbelief. Jesus is amazed at their lack of belief. It's like how we have people growing up in a church environment their whole lives, and yet some people might be hearing the words, but they're not really hearing it, right? They're not really taking it down into their hearts and applying it. They just hear it, and it goes in one ear and out the other. And they figure they're okay because they've gone to church their whole lives. Faith withers and dies. When people kind of take Jesus from a place of being God to, yeah, he's just kind of a good guy who said a lot of good things. and I've heard all of it in Sunday school and church. 
And I guess, I guess I believe, but I don't, I don't know. Because of the sheer level of unbelief that happens here in Nazareth, Jesus is not able to perform miracles. It doesn't mean Jesus has suddenly lost his power. It means that the Spirit, remember the Spirit, God the Spirit does the miracles. And the God the Spirit is in Jesus at that moment. God the Spirit is performing a judgment on the people of Nazareth. He's withholding Jesus' miracles, the power of doing miracles, because of the lack of faith. Faith, again, we see this correlation between faith and miracles. Faith and God doing his work. And When there is no faith, God says, then why should I do the miracle? Why should I come into this place and do these things? Their ears are still blocked up. These people. One thing that really struck me is that, did you know that after this visit here in Mark 6, Jesus never once again in all the Gospels is recorded coming back to Nazareth? Never. These people, they're so lost. They're lost in their sin. They're lost in their unbelief. Jesus came, presented the gospel to them, and they sneered at him. They rejected him. They closed their eyes, their ears. What kind of man is this, they asked. The sad thing is that the town never got to know. They never got to really see it and understand it. And as Mark drives forward to the answer of this question that we're going to get further into the gospel, remember again and again, the key question of Mark is, who is this man? Who is he really? Is he who we thought he was? This kid who grew up in our town? This builder? This nobody? Or is he somebody more? Is he a prophet? Is he somebody even greater than that? Even today, Jesus' teaching is polarizing in the church. All may be amazed by it, but while it serves to drive some people to repentance and salvation, it repels others. It will create offense in their lives, and will even drive them further into their disbelief. So I urge you today, don't take your faith for granted just because you happen to be in this church this Sunday morning. That God gives you a gold star and says, well, you attendance right here for Knox Church on March 31st, 2019. That doesn't matter. What matters is whether your faith is real, whether you are hearing what God's saying and whether you're really believing God will not work through your unbelief, but he will work through your faith. Have faith in God. He does amazing things. Last week we talked about how he did amazing things with a dead girl, with a woman who was suffering for 12 weeks. And yet when he gets to this town where there's no belief, there's no, no, no works by God through it. I pray today that your life and this church will help to encourage your faith, will be a beacon of belief in this community that people will look at us and say, those people have not only heard Jesus' teachings, but they live his teachings too. Let's pray. Dear Lord, sometimes your words are hard. Sometimes they are hard to hear, but Lord, they are always wonderful. They are truth. And you give us truth unvarnished straight from your mouth. Lord, we praise you today for your scripture. Lord, the, the warnings that we see in today's scripture where a town full of unbelief, and a lack of miracles that are happening in that. Lord, we pray that that would not be Knox Church, would not be Kenmore. Lord, that belief and real faith would take root here. That we would hear, we would listen, and we would respond to you. Lord, thank you for giving us your message. In your name, amen.
Please receive the benediction. And now let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All God's people said amen. Amen. Go in peace.